It's not what we're doing is not rocket science. It's, it's actually quite basic, basic arithmetic, right? It's doing some solid due diligence in terms of understanding that the risks we're taking, um, working hard to, to, to understand the extent to which the risks relate to one another, um, and therefore the risk premiums are genuinely orthogonal and uh, and independent. Once you get there, then you let the kind of the, you know the, the, the risk premium harvesting do its work. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by Dylan Grice. Dylan is the co-founder of Calderwood Capital. Calderwood Capital is a hedge fund boutique specializing in orthogonal niche and capacity constrained hedge fund investing. Uh, Dylan has a very interesting background. He's been in the markets for a number of decades. He's possibly best known as the author of the popular Delusions investment newsletter, uh, but his career has spanned being a, a strategist, a family office allocator, and obviously now as the co-founder of Calderwood Capital. Dylan, great to have you on today. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Um, well, I'm sure we've got a lot to get through, but we typically start off by getting a sense of the guest's background. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, for, for the few people who maybe don't know you and your background, could you give us a sense on how you got into markets and the, kind of the trajectory of your career that, that brought you to setting up Calderwood Capital? Um, well, I mean, I guess... The, the kind of starting point for me was 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 economics. You know that was my kind of first passion, really, um, undergrad and then postgrad. And um, all I really wanted to do when I was kind of in my early twenties was 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 be an economist. Um, sad as that sounds, uh, and I kind of stumbled into um, uh, the city. I was I was a, a student at the LSE, and everyone at the LSE was applying to. Um, to all these um, uh, investment banks, and I didn't know what an investment bank was. I thought a bank was just where you went to, you know, to cash a check or something like that. Um, but I did kind of realise that they, they, they seemed to be talking about getting paid quite well. Uh, and then I discovered that a lot of these banks employed economists, so I figured that, you know, if I could actually get paid well for studying the economy and doing economic research, then that was that was better than doing the PhD, which I'd originally planned. So it was a bit of an upgrade on my plans. And, uh, you know, uh, fortuitously enough, I was, I, was, I was made a couple of offers. I took one of them. Um, uh, and so that was it. So I started out as an economist, soon realized that predicting markets was more interesting than predicting the economy. Um, uh, soon also realized that predicting markets was 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 very hard. Um, I, uh, I went onto the prop desk. I was uh, on the prop desk uh, for about four or five years, trade, trading equities. 
Um, and then kind of, you know, uh, did, did a couple of stints, one back in research, this time as a strategist at Sock Gen with, um, with Albert Edwards. Um, uh, and when I, Albert hired me, um, uh, when uh, James Monte, who, you know, who um, had been there before me, James went to to go and kind of head up the asset allocation at, at, um, at uh, GMO. And um, and so Albert hired me. And the reason he hired me was because I, I, I'd had this kind of four to five year prop trading experience. And I think that you get, you know, he kind of felt that a lot of sell side strategists were, you know, would talk a lot, but they'd never really put money to work. They'd never actually managed risk. They'd never managed capital. They'd never felt that pain um, that you feel when your P&L just blows up in your face and your kind of best laid plans just um, uh, uh, um, fall apart. Um, and so, you know, I, I, and I did that. And, and one of the one of the things that I got very interested in on the prop desk was was really the psychology of, 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 of trading. I got very interested in the the, the psychology of of, of, of risk taking, um, because I observed very quickly this, um, that it it seems to do something to you. You know, when you've got money um, uh, backing a view, uh, it seems to affect that view. It affects your thinking, and I kind of um, discovered very early on that um, risk taking um, can really make an idiot of you. It can really um, uh, uh, play with your, your 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 rationality, and so how obviously when you to to be an in, a successful investor you have to stay rational. So it, there was a kind of very, very interesting challenge and 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 you know internal challenge. How do you stay rational when when you've got um, kind of capital on the line when you're actually allocating capital when you're when when, when you're making trades um, and the world is just going crazy. And so this is a bit this was a very interesting kind of. Um, um, kind of psychological um, um, uh, problem to solve, and I, I guess that was my second passion. If if if, if economics was my first passion, then I, I guess this kind of investor psychology was my second. And and I, I've never I've never really left those two. So I went to Salt Gen. I, I, I kind of wrote, wrote a bit about that type of thing. James had James Monte was a well-known behavioral um, kind of um, finance guy. So I was kind of following his footsteps really. But I get, I said after a few years, I I did get a little bit kind of bored of just writing all the time and not actually managing um, risk again. And so I was lucky enough to end up at a family office in, in Switzerland, um, uh, one of the largest uh, in Europe, actually, multi-billion um, uh, family office, single family office, um, where I ended up running um, about half the assets, uh, uh, helping run half the assets, um, building the team there, um, uh, and uh, really just ha having a great time, really, really enjoyed it. But um, uh, I think, you know, a few years ago, so this is up to about 2017, 2018, um, I was ready to kind of do it for myself. You know, I, I, I felt that um, the world was changing and um, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd always had this kind of in inkling to set up, set up, set up my own shop and, and run my own portfolio and try and build my own hedge fund. And, and so I uh, thought 17, 18 was probably the right, right time to start doing that. Pretty good. So, I mean, um, maybe tell us a little bit about the kind of, um, portfolio you run at Calderwood. Obviously you mentioned that kind of, I guess, interest, desire for, for risk taking, but, um, I'm guessing it's quite different to kind of equity prop trading when you move into, hedge fund investing it's a slightly different pace i would think but obviously some similarities some differences i guess yeah i think that um the the the, the similarities um are that uh you you, you know you, you're you're putting capital to work you, you are taking risk uh you don't really know what is going to happen tomorrow you don't know what the future holds um and ultimately it's a kind of calibration exercise you're you're, you're trying to calibrate that uncertainty um, and you're trying to kind of size things uh, appropriately. There's, there's, so in, in that sense, um, uh, running a fund of funds, which is what Calderwood is, um, is no different from managing an equity book. Um, uh, another thing which, you know, I, I guess kind of relatedly, something that all investors do is you, you're kind of looking at something that's happened in the past and, and trying to kind of gauge whether or not that's likely to happen in the future. Also, obviously, if something is has performed very well, whether it's a stock or a bond or a manager, you're you're asking yourself, well, is that going to continue? 
Uh, and by the same token, maybe, maybe the stock or the bond of the manager hasn't performed well. And you're going to ask, well, is it is it going to change? Is that going to improve? You know, so, so you're always asking that kind of fundamental question, and you're asking that you're trying to answer that question uh, in a world of of of, of, of imperfect knowledge, of, of very very imperfect knowledge. And um, so to that extent, that, that, that they're very very similar. I guess the difference is one would be the cadence. So I don't sit kind of staring at Bloomberg screens all day. And that's obviously that's by design. I don't really enjoy doing that. So I'm quite happy to let other people do that for me. Um, and the second is that there's a kind of unusual um, return profile with, um, with 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 hedge fund in, investing, um, and that return profile is that you're kind of your upside is typically quite capped to the extent that you know if 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 everything goes well, you'll you you'll get what the manager promises they'll, they'll deliver. So maybe that's eight percent or ten percent or whatever it is. That's that's your kind of upside. The downside is that it blows up. And you can be on the hook for, you know, multiples of that on the downside, potentially locked capital, um, uh, or as backers of FTX, or <laughs> are now discovering actually far worse. Um, uh, so there is there there is this kind of negative skew, which is maybe a little bit like a bond portfolio. You know, when you're managing a bond portfolio, a credit portfolio, you have limited upside, you've got all the downside, and actually allocating the hedge funds is is, is kind of similar. So. Um, I guess that would be a, 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 another difference. And I guess when people think of a fund of hedge funds or a hedge fund investing, I mean, I guess long short equity is probably the biggest uh, sub strategy within the hedge fund world. Um, but I'm, 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 um, I'm assuming you're investing in quite different strategies. You, you say orthogonal niche and capacity constraints. So it's very much outside the plain vanilla by the sounds of it is presumably that's by design that you think there are greater opportunities once you get away from 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 the the, the main strategies i guess well that was um that was why we did it that's why we're here that's what that that was the opportunity that we saw you know when i was sitting in the family office um we saw uh, you know lots of hedge funds trust me everyone was pitching to us and you know by and large they they, they, they kind of all did the same thing um, and it, it seemed to me that what you were getting, generally speaking, generally speaking, what you were seeing in the hedge fund space was kind of equity in disguise. So long short equity was 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 equity. Event driven was was equity. Risk arbitrage was equity. Um, and by by equity, you know, structured credit, vanilla structured credit was equity. And what you kind of found, even a lot of quant stuff, you know, it was kind of trend following until there was a you know, uh, a market downturn, and and then it it, it would get battered when the market was down. Um, uh, now, quant is 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 actually slightly kind of different, um, for reasons that you know very well. But um, too much of the hedge fund space was actually just repackaging equity risk with with you know with with a few kind of bells and whistles and some extra fees, and um, uh, that was never very interesting to me. Um, uh, one of the things that I also saw when when I was at the family office was this some was that. There was actually some really, really interesting stuff. Um, there was some really, really interesting um, uh, uh, firms, some really, really interesting investors doing um, stuff that seemed to be quite funky um, superficially. Um, but once you dug into it, it, actually, it wasn't so funky. So life settlements, for example, um, you'd kind of dig into life settlements. And at first, I don't even know what life settlements is. <laughs> How does that work? How do you price it? How do you value it? You know, what's the market? But once you would dig into it and actually speak to a few managers, speak to a few traders, you would discover that actually there's 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 people in that market who have made their careers in that market. Um, you know that market has its own culture, it has its own um, narrative, it has its own kind of folklore. You know, like stock stock investors talk about 1987 or, or you know 2008 as as a great crash, and those, they'll be scarred by those experiences. Bond investors will talk used to talk about 1994. They're probably now talking about 2022. Um, and you would find the same thing in life settlements or catastrophe, um, or you know, um, uh, uh, more recently cryptocurrencies. Um, uh, and that was just very very interesting to me. Um, and I think that the, the 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 opportunity, as I saw, as we kind of saw, as speaking to my partner um, about it, um, was that actually you could really, really, you could build a very, very robust portfolio, a very, very solid, sound, low volatility, low correlation, high returning portfolio, if you harnessed 
the full richness and diversity of the hedge fund space. So, so that's kind of you know that that's that was kind of the motivation for what what we were doing. Right, nobody needs another. <laughs> Um, equity uh, portfolio, which is kind of dressed up as a hedge fund, but is is, is really just a, a, an equity book in disguise. And, and so that's really what we can set about to do. That's what we try and do at Caldwell. Good stuff. And was, I mean, I, I'm guessing the macro environment that we've been in, the low rate kind of environment and, you know, people have been saying for a while, 60, 40 is dead and, or will be get dead going forward. And, and obviously people might reassess that after this year, you know, you could debate that. But was, was that part of your thinking that we were at an interesting inflection point? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think that um, uh, you know it was and it still is. The thing about fund of funds, um, uh, you know, it it allows you to be very very precise about the risks that you're taking. Now, if you're going to restrict yourself as an allocator. To long shot equity and to you know some kind of vanilla structured credit, maybe a bit of event driven, um, uh, then you're 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 really not harnessing the full potential of the hedge fund space because all you're actually doing you're playing it safe for sure, and you might throw in a little bit of macro and a little bit of quant to kind of you know for a little bit of diversification purposes, but basically what you're going to have is an equity portfolio, um, and it's just it's just not that interesting. Now if you've got equity risk, you've got all sorts of things going on. You've, You've obviously got a huge amount of um, uh, duration uh, risk. You've got your your your, your standard kind of equity risk, your equity volatility. Uh, you've got your liquidity risk. Um, you're kind of bundling a whole bunch of things together in that one kind of uh, package, which which ninety nine percent of investors have already. Whereas if you actually say, well, what are we left with if we suppose we don't? do go down that traditional path if we don't tread that very well-worn path suppose we actually um go a little bit off-piste and see what we can find you can be incredibly precise about the risks that you're taking so for example you know maybe we do want to take um catastrophe risk right um through a reinsurance manager or through cat bonds or something like that so we're underwriting the risk of a hurricane hitting florida okay maybe we want to take that because we're getting paid well for it and um, maybe Maybe we would want to take longevity risk in the life settlements market. And by the way, I should say that we haven't actually done that yet in, in, in the fund for, for separate reasons. But, you know, maybe longevity risk is an interesting risk premium that we can take. You know, maybe uh, some of the risks that you can take in, in, in private credit markets. These are quite kind of interesting. So maybe, and maybe a little bit of credit risk is also interesting. Maybe a little bit of equity. But maybe duration is something that we really don't want to take. We don't want to take any duration risk. We can do that in our in our um, setup because we can be so precise about what we want to, to to do. Whereas if you're stuck in a 60-40, you're just bundling together all sorts of things that you just cannot get out of. Um, and that was something that we really, really, you know, um, were, were very clear from the, from the outset that um, we, ju- we just weren't interested in, 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 in doing. And obviously, the way things have gone in 2022, that's that's been very, very... You know that's been that's been good. <laughs> it's been very very good for our portfolio. We've had no duration that we've been able to build. You know a decent portfolio without duration. So that's just one example of the, the, the I think that the 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 kind of advantage you get with a fund of funds. And obviously, I mentioned at the outset, you're probably best known or you're at least well known for for the popular delusions. Uh, uh, newsletter and you, I know your business uh, for a long time was kind of research and um, and and investing, but I understand that that, that may be changing. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, when we when we set up Codewood a few years ago, I mean, the first thing we did was set up the research business. You know, so we kind of relaunched Popular Delusions. Um, Popular Delusions was the was 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 the research I wrote at Soft Gen, um, uh, and we you know we kind of relaunched that, and uh, and you know, and that went down well. We also launched the hedge fund business, um, and you know, w- when we started it, it was just me and my partner, and that was it. Um, what's happened over the last few years is that both businesses have have, have grown. Um, you know, we're really pleased about um, um, uh, where where they are, um, but you know, the, to, 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 you know, we, we we kind of were at a crossroads. We had to really choose one or the other because um, obviously, the the, bus- the bigger a business gets, the more attention it demands and the more bandwidth it demands. And we were getting to the stage really we had to make a decision. We we had the bandwidth for one or the other, uh, and you know we told our subscribers, you know, we were very, very clear from the very beginning that um, uh, they were paying for the research, and the, the research was really about leveraging what we were doing in the fund, 
Um, but the priority was always the fund. You're managing other people's money. You've got a fiduciary responsibility uh, to those people, um, uh, to those um, owners of capital. Um, and so we were always very clear that, you know, push comes to shove, we will drop everything to manage the fund. Um, it's not the other way around. And it just got to the stage that we kind of had to, you know, we, we we had to kill one of the businesses, and so um, the business that we um, that we wound down was the was the research. But sadly, because it was a lot of fun, um, and, you know, it was it was it, we were really pleased with um, with where we'd managed to take it. We had some excellent subscribers, um, made some very very good um, uh, relationships. Uh, but you know, you, yeah, you can, you can't do everything, uh, and our focus has has always been the fund, and 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 that's now just going to be our full focus from 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 here. And obviously, you have had that kind of, obviously, you started off with economics, and you've always had that macro view. At the same time, you're taking kind of, you know, getting into the micro uh, quite a bit too, in terms of manager selection and individual strategies. Would you say, you know, is it more top down or bottom up or a mix of both? Or how do you, how would you describe that? Well, I mean, um, probably a mix of both. I think that, uh you know, one of the kind of foundational experiences for me on the prop desk was this kind of realization that I actually I couldn't predict anything very well. Um, and I think that a lot of people seem, you know, a lot of people might listen to that and say, well, obviously, I mean, everyone knows that. Um, but I don't think they do. I think people typically think that maybe they've got, I mean, obviously it's difficult, but, you know, maybe I can get, I probably get 51 or 52% of things right, and that's all you need. And I, I think, no, you don't get 51 but you get 50%, right? And you probably size your positions wrong so that you're actually, on average, you are just going to lose money um, by taking taking these punts. And I kind of realized that and saw that, frankly, on, on, on the prop desk. So this kind of idea that, you know, the future is fundamentally unpredictable was 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 something that, 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 um, as I said, this was a kind of foundational experience. I should say, I've, I've, I've definitely met investors who do work hard on predicting, um, and they are effectively in the business of predicting. And they would be the macro funds and some of the quant funds. Um, but when you speak to the people who are very successful at that, and you 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 see how hard they work at it, um, it's it's just not as simple as pulling up a couple of charts that you can get for free off the internet, drawing a few squiggly around, a, squiggly, a few squiggly lines around it, and then thinking that your view has any actual value, because it's just much, much harder than that. I think Richard Feynman um, used to talk about the advantage he had over most other you know, pundits, most pundits and most social scientists he was particularly talking about. He said the advantage, the advantage he had, he said, was that he knew how difficult it was to know something, <laughs> right? This is the guy who actually worked at Los Alamos and did the first experiments on kind of you know nuclear reactions, and if they got those wrong, they would you know, they would know about it. So he knew how hard it was to know something, and I think a lot of people don't fully realise how hard it is to really really know something. You get into the prediction business, um, it's really really hard to accurately and, and, and reliably make accurate. Um, uh, predictions and so that's not really something that we do um uh, what we do is kind of the opposite we actually our starting point is look we we can't really predict we can stress test though so we can say well what if you know inflation is running at 10 percent in, in in 10 years time we would interest rate and how would a portfolio handle that kind of scenario can we build can we build a portfolio that actually can 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 accommodate those different stress scenarios and and, and accommodate it well and, and robustly so from that perspective the macro comes in in terms of 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 trying to understand the range of of outcomes and build in that portfolio robustness to those different outcomes that's where the macro comes more from stress testing not from predicting and then in terms of the micro you just get much ironically i think you get much better macro information from the micro right you know if you're actually talking to you know you you want to have a view on defaults for example you want to have a view on the cycle a great place to start is to speak to a CLO manager, right? Go and speak to a guy who's managed CLO equity. They'll have a far, they still won't really know, but they'll have far more insight into where we are in the default cycle. And more importantly, where the market thinks we are in the default cycle than, you know, than any kind of high level strategist that's sitting looking at the, you know, I don't know, the S&P data or, or something like that. So I think you get, we got great insight, I, I think, into 
um, some of what was going on in the crypto markets because we were invested in cryptocurrency arbitrage managers, right? So we were talking to them regularly. Um, and we were having regular kind of dialogue, regular conversations. And we started to, and obviously we were doing our own research at the time and following the market um, uh, in, our, in our own way. And we started to kind of see things that we didn't quite understand, that didn't quite add up, that certainly smelt bad. Um, and speaking to our crypto managers, it just kind of, felt that this was a, actually a market that was 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 not very healthy um and so we you know we pulled it that's not we didn't predict ftx by the way we didn't we didn't get these things but we could see that this was actually a market that was there were a, a, a number of red flags so here you could get a market a macro view arguably but it all comes from much higher quality micro information i i think that the, the information quality at a micro level is just far higher okay interesting and i mean putting that in the current context you know we're in obviously in the midst of a tightening cycle it's the most uh aggressive we've seen um you know going back from an, a number of decades and we've had this big kind of a rate shock zero to you know it'll be what four percent or so over four probably this week and possibly going to five and everybody's worried you know um What's going to be the impact of that? Uh, you know, uh, will we see stresses or strains somewhere in the system? Are you picking up any evidence of that kind of from a, a micro perspective amid all of the different types of strategies and managers you talk to? You know, actually not really. Um, I mean, this, 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 which, is, which is interesting. But um, in terms of um, the big shot, if you like, you know, we still haven't seen it. We can't really find it. Um, I think that there's, in kind of isolated markets, there's absolutely some big shocks. So I think in Canada, um, the housing market is is an absolute disaster. And I think that is going to be very, very painful for that economy um, and probably for its financial system. Uh, I think you probably, probably have something similar, although not quite as egregious, um, uh, in the UK, um, uh, maybe in some of the Scandi countries. Uh, probably in Australia as well. Um, so I think that this kind of, I think the housing pain is is something which is going to be potentially quite brutal in pockets of the of of, of the, the the kind of global economy. Um, but uh, I think it's not like in two thousand and eight where it was the U.S. housing market and therefore the entire you know global financial system. Um, so I don't think that it's necessarily globally systemic those 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 types of things uh you know I, some of the, the the guys we speak to are very very bearish on the default cycle um and where it goes um but some of them aren't so 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 bearish and it doesn't feel that there's any great um uh because i see some of them aren't so bearish some of them aren't so bearish relative to where you know um default risk is, is, is trading so you know you could get um you know, well, a few weeks ago, you could get um, uh, double BCLOs, uh, you know, giving you 15%, right? So, okay, so that can absorb quite a meaningful default cycle. You're unlikely to lose money even in a kind of default cycle, kind of like 2008. So that's kind of telling you that the market's kind of already there, right? Um, uh, I said things have changed over the last few weeks. But, yeah, it's, 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 it, beyond that, it's, it's difficult to see. As I said, we've seen pockets of stress. We've seen stress in the U.S. mortgage market. We, we saw the um, um, uh, the, uh, the agency spread really blow out. We saw pockets of stress in the U.K. pension market um, when gilts completely nosedived, yields ballooned. Um, and uh, we've seen stress in the crypto markets but it just hasn't really been systemic we haven't seen that systemic thing and i, I always you're kind of weary of 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 saying this but i i think our best guess at the moment is there isn't really a systemic issue mm, interesting yeah i can sense <laughs> why you'd be wary of, of as soon as you say that you could you might regret it but but no i hear what you're saying uh, maybe that's been the uh I guess that's what we've seen in equity markets as well this year with the VIX not really ever having that big spike that, that people had expected. Well, you, I mean, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Right? So there's always that kind of, there's that hesitancy to to, to, to be overly kind of um, forceful about, about a conclusion like that. But, 
you know, if you look at, you know, when do you get a big spike in 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 in, in the VIX? You know, the, the VIX hasn't changed above forty this year. And if somebody told you at the beginning, at the beginning of this year that the market was going to be at its low point, twenty five percent down, um, but the VIX wouldn't have been above forty, you'd probably be quite surprised by that. Uh, but actually, if you obviously you don't have the VIX market, you don't have the VIX index going back to um, uh, over the last hundred years, but you do have realized volatility. And realized volatility um, you, during market drawdowns doesn't always spike to you know eighty or hundred or one hundred and twenty. In fact, it's actually very very rare. Um, and the kind of environments, I mean, obviously it spiked. I think I think realized vol hit something like one hundred and twenty in nineteen eighty seven, right? Um, uh, I think uh, you were in the kind of the the you were close to the kind of eighty ninety um, level in. Um, uh, uh, in 2008, we saw something similar again in, in, in 2020 during COVID. But actually, and then, and then in 1929, I think in 1929, you got through 100 on, on, on realized volatility. But generally, those kind of spikes are very, very rare. They're very unusual. And the reason is those spikes happen when, you know, correlation spikes. And I, I don't know, you're a quant, and probably some of your listeners are, are, are quants. But you know that's that's the equation, right? It's not just the actual volatility of the constituents; it's the it's the correlation of those constituents. And so you get the real vol spikes when you get a correlation event. Eighty-seven was a correlation event. Two thousand eight was a correlation event. Um, Twenty twenty was a correlation event. Um, the 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 Nasdaq bust of twenty twenty wasn't a correlation event, right? Because you had Yes, you had lots of tech stuff that was going under, but you had all the kind of old economy stuff that was recovering, right? And you had all the kind of value stuff that was recovering. The 1970s, so, so you didn't have a high correlation. Some stuff was going up um, while other stuff was going down. In the 1970s, it was the same. During inflation, the resource stocks, the gold stocks, the miners, those guys were doing brilliantly, right? So again, you had this kind of, it was almost like it was, the 1970s inflation was a kind of redistribution. So you didn't quite get the correlations. You didn't get the volatility spikes. Um, and I feel that this has been something similar, right? We've actually had some people doing really, really well out of out of uh, uh, the, the problems of 2022. Um, and so it's you haven't had that correlation. And so you haven't had the spike in, in volatility. And I think that people are almost so positioned for it because 2008 is so fresh in the memory and 2020 is so fresh in the memory. Um, but... I, I don't think it's, it's going to happen, partly for that reason. That's one of the reasons why tail funds have, have generally done so badly. Uh, this year. Even though markets are down so heavily, most tail funds have, 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 have been dreadful. Yeah. I guess, to, yeah, it's, it's one of those questions. Is, it, uh, is there something going on that we're not aware of or is it just, is it going to happen with a lag? I mean, if you had gone back to, you know, when the rates cycle started, you know, I think everybody kind of said, oh, well, you know, rates might go up to two and a quarter percent or two and a half. That's, that was the previous kind of 2018 uh, cycle. And, you know, you'd see these charts of showing the Fed funds with a downward slight sloping line showing every progressive Fed funds peak has been lower. You know, it, it, it seems surprising that that if you told people, no, we'll get to 5% and nothing will break and the equity market will go down and bounce back up, that would have been a surprise, I'm guessing, to people. Has that surprised you? Um, yeah, it has been a surprise. Uh, yeah, I, I've certainly been surprised by how kind of um, aggressive the Fed have been. Um, although, I, by the way, I, I, you know, if you look at this tightening compared to, for example, what Volcker did um, in the early 80s, it's, it's not that aggressive. Interest rates are below inflation. Um, you know, we've still got negative, you know, real interest rates in that perspective. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so I think that's... St- you know, an important qualification. Although, as I said, I, I have been surprised at his um, um, uh, kind of aggressiveness. But I, I kind of like to think that uh, I don't really care. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. I actually, you know, we look at some of the kind of opportunities that they, 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 they sat in front of us. Um, and it, it, it almost, it doesn't really matter what happens over the next few years. I, I personally, for what it's worth, I actually think, they were probably through the hump cyclically. You know, there's a kind of there's a structural inflation, the cyclical inflation. I think cyclically we peaked, and I think that the markets will probably do okay, um, and that risk assets will probably do okay. But that's not a bet that we're interested in making. That's not. I don't think that's high quality um, investment decision making for the reasons I already talked about. Um, and when we look at some of the things that's, that are coming across our desk, 
um, you know, you're, you're looking at certainly 15 to 20% returns in, 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 in some areas. Um, for example, you know, reinsurance, we already talked about reinsurance. Um, uh, reinsurance, th those markets are very hard at the moment. There's a real shortage of capital in those, those markets. And they've had a tough few years. They had a very tough 2022 because of Hurricane Ian. It was the biggest event and um, um, in, um, uh, the biggest insurable uh, loss, it looks like, in, in, in Florida's history. Uh, so there's a shortage of capital at a time when um, interest rates have gone up. It, reinsurance is priced off. Um, uh, LIBOR or whatever they call the benchmark now. So you would have been you would have been looking at double digit returns anyway. Um, but now, given the hardness of the market, given this kind of peculiarity, this well, not peculiarity, the idiosyncrasy um, and the idiosyncratic shock of that market, it's kind of been a perfect storm. So I think that you can you you know you can be looking at fifteen to twenty percent returns in um, uh, in, in that space, which you haven't seen for for a long time. Um, uh, that's really interesting. And it kind of doesn't matter what happens to inflation. If we're right about inflation or if we're wrong about inflation, we're still looking at, you know, let's call it a 15% return in that space. Um, so, I mean, I, I, as I said uh, earlier, I, I think that it's kind of very interesting to talk about where the economy is going and what might happen to inflation and what the Fed do. But uh, I don't actually, it, it doesn't really matter to us. We're, we're just seeing some really, really interesting opportunities that are just much more interesting. Okay. So, I mean, moving into that then, in terms of how you can construct a portfolio, I guess you're, you're trying to access a, kind of a, a range of different uncorrelated sources of return. Um, how, you know, is what, what's the overall objective? Is it, I guess, capital return with capital preservation? Or are you trying to maximize um, a sharp ratio? Or, or tell us a little bit how you think about kind of building a portfolio and, and the risk return profile. Well, you know, I, um, I mean, very, very much a product of the kind of family office mentality. A family office typically um, is about capital preservation. Um, family offices are, you know, they're typically very, very wealthy uh, individuals with very wealthy principles. Uh, they're not necessarily interested in becoming more rich. They just, they just don't want to be poor. Um, so there's a different um, kind of focal point uh, on the risks that you're taking. Um, within portfolio construction, you, you don't necessarily build um, a low risk portfolio by only making low risk investments. Right, you you can build a very low risk portfolio by taking very high risk individual investments, as long as those risks don't correlate, um, and that's what we do. Um, and so the objective is really to have something which is genuinely all weather. Um, it's not correlated to mainstream assets. It's not correlated to equities. Not correlated to bonds. Um, uh, it should be um, robust to potential regime change. It should be robust to uncertainty. Robust to our own ignorance. Um, that's what we try to do. Um, and, you know, what kind of return are we expecting to make? Probably, uh, let's say, between 4 and 6% in excess of the whatever risk-free returns are. So right now that puts you into close to double-digit returns um, that we can make. And by the way, historically, that's an equity return, right? Uh, historically, equities have returned something like, four, depending on which which equity market and which 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 currency. But historically, equity markets over the last 100, 150 years have returned about four to six percent in excess of um, the risk-free rate. And um, so, what we're effectively doing is is we thinking, you know, making equity returns um, with very 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 low volatility and very low correlation, which of course is the holy grail. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what everyone's. <laughs> I think the difference is that you know we're we're actually doing it in a very kind of harnessing um, what Svensson called the you know the the only free lunch in finance, which is diversification. It's not what we're doing is not rocket science. It's really not rocket. Science. It's, it's actually quite basic, basic arithmetic, right? It's doing some solid due diligence on in terms of understanding the risks we're taking. Um, working hard to, to to understand the extent to which the risks relate to one another, um, and therefore the risk premiums are genuinely orthogonal and uh, and independent. And once you get to that, once you get there, then you let the kind of the you know the the, the risk premium harvesting do its work. Yeah, and I mean when you get into these kind of more niche funky, as you call it, uh, strategies, uh, is it more difficult to think about? 
return expectations and and the range of outcomes and are these risk premia more fleeting um is it does it require more of a tactical kind of mindset like for example is the is that kind of return in catastrophe bonds or reinsurance does that vary quite dramatically depending on you know whether we've just come out of a hurricane or not Yes, uh, there's always, the, I mean, there's always a, the opportunity set, set is, is always moving. Um, you know, so what might be very, very attractive right now may not have been attractive a couple of years ago um, and, and, and vice versa. Um, you know, we, and to give you a kind of indication, we, we, what kind of things do we look at? Um, I mean, well, we look at anything, um, but in terms of our portfolio right now, um, we do have, you know, we do have we do have a lot of quant. We have some um, arbitrage strategies, whether it's capital structure arbitrage, convertible bond um, uh, arbitrage. As I said, we had been very active in cryptocurrency arbitrage for a time, um, but we pulled out of that earlier this year. Um, you know, which I think is a good example of of, of what you're saying. Uh, sometimes the opportunity set does just shrink. Um, uh, and that can, that can be for one of two ways. It can be because the return, the expected return is declining, or because the expected risk is increasing. Um, what happened in crypto was was was, was both. Um, but we also look at stuff like you know litigation finance, trade finance, uh, mortgage derivatives, uh, correlation trading, volatility, um, volatility relative value. Um, uh, so you know all of these kind of things are non-trivial. Uh, and all of these things require a certain amount of understanding. I should say, you know, I, I, my background as family office manager, also as a uh, as a prop trader. Um, my kind of prop trading was 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 um, was was equity and equity products. You know, this is kind of I suppose my natural kind of home. I also did some commodity stuff, um, but I have this macro background. I should say that you know, in our team, um, my uh, partner Rob was is is um, uh, who you know. Uh, well, as as he you know he he spent his whole career in um, in um, in quant and um, he's got a PhD in econometrics, very technical guy. Um, most recently, he was he was actually running um, uh, Rentex European office for, for for Jim Simon. So so he's very well um, kind of connected, very very well versed in, in quantitative strategies. So we feel that we understand that stuff pretty well. And uh, uh, another partner, uh, Tim Bergen, uh, he'd spent um, the, the bulk of his career actually running. Um, a credit prop book. So he was doing IG, high yield and convertibles, including convertible bond arbitrage. So he kind of, I think between us, we've got the kind of the building blocks, right, to really kind of understand. So if you, if you understand equities, understand credit, understand um, uh, converts, understand quant, you kind of understand, I think you understand pretty much everything. You can apply it to, even if you haven't seen it before, you kind of scratch away the surface and then you realize you kind of have it's actually so credit correlations not so different from equity volatility for for, for example um and um, in many ways um and um and so you know as i said it's non-trivial but we we feel that we've got the you know we're confident that we can um understand what what, what we're doing and i should also be very clear if we don't understand it we don't do it right very very it's not like we do everything that's funky we say no to most things um and quite often Things that come across there just don't make any sense. Or the risk profile is just far too high. Um, uh, you know, so um, it's, yeah, I mean, risks, the, the risks are allocated to a manager are, are, are legion. And it's not just about the strategy. It can be about the operational setup, you know, the manager's mentality, how you mark the book, how you cut all these kind of things, which are, which are a lot kind of unusual. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you touch on a, 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 an important point there of understanding kind of the risks in the strategies and 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 the investments and and how they they link. And I guess, um, you know, obviously we, we're all familiar with kind of correlations going to one, you know, in, in a crisis and, you know, kind of familiar with kind of unforeseen consequences. So I guess, how do you, how do you kind of um, uh, navigate that risk, and I guess that that's part of the scale of running a portfolio like this. Of thinking about if we have a problem in X, how do you know that it's not going to impact this uh, particular investment that you have? Um, is that is that you know uh, you you could, you could probably seduce yourself by saying, well, the correlation is low, but but as as I say, that can change quickly. How do you how do you I suppose um, deal with that risk of you may you know something like. Uh, something that might be driven by a micro consideration being overwhelmed by a contagion from kind of a macro factor i mean i mean yeah so that's i guess that's where it starts to become um 
very, very specific to managing a hedge fund portfolio. Um, because you, 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 as I said, we can be very, very precise with the kind of risks that we're taking. And therefore, we can be very, very precise about how to diversify away from some of those risks. Um, so if you're just in, if you're just allocating financially, if you're managing an equity portfolio, for example, um, you know, you might kind of have a, um, a, a you know, some, some, some bank stocks because you think they're very, very cheap and maybe a hedge against some kind of systemic problem would be some gold mining uh, stocks or or, or, or or something like that. But if there's a huge liquidity event and everything kind of, you know, um, uh, correlates to one, as you said, then the gold mining stocks are going to go down with the bank stocks. So you're kind of, um, your diversification is, is not really going to be there. Um, uh, of course, the problem here is that, uh, you know, that type of manager is just in one asset, in one asset class and one type of instrument, i.e. Um, uh, uh, publicly traded equities. Um, we don't have any of those constraints, so we can actually diversify. So, um, you know, suppose uh, suppose we find a um, we find credit risk to be attractive, and you know, and let's we, we were talking about CLO um, uh, uh, double Bs, you know, a moment a moment ago. Suppose that's an interesting way to get to get to take credit risk. You're getting paid much more on in CLO bubble, um, uh, uh, double Bs than you're getting in say high yield. Or you know, or, or investment or something like that. Let's just suppose, for example, that that's what the, we think that's an interesting risk that we want to take. Of course, we're kind of on the hook for a much bigger default cycle than we think, or a much bigger correlation event. Um, but we can actually allocate to traders uh, and investors who benefit from that correlation. You know, correlation is actually implied correlation is a, a, a tradable thing, um, and the um, uh, and the and the. Um, uh, CDS tranche markets. So, and of course, like anything else, sometimes it makes sense to own correlation and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's cheap and sometimes it's expensive. Um, but typically, not always, but typically what you find is that correlation is cheap when spreads are tight. So we know of managers who trade, who trade that correlation um, and effectively know how to get very, very cheap when the market is, is, is offering it. They know how to get very, very cheap convexity to correlation events because they are long correlation. So effectively, they want to have those. So if we've got in our portfolio a manager who's actually going to get hit by a correlation event, but another manager who's going to benefit from a correlation event, then now we're offsetting um, those risks. And of course, if each of those managers actually has some kind of alpha or you know uh, underlying it, then over time, what we find is that both managers should be performing, but at any particular time, if one's not performing, the other one should be. And so that's one way that we can um, manage that risk. Of course, you might then say, yeah, but if there's a really, really big correlation event caused by a financial system meltdown and prime brokers are pulling leverage and, 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 and the bank's going down, then even your correlation manager is, 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 is going to be in trouble because he's got counterparty risk with the financial system. And so how do you diversify that? And again, that's that's now you're getting into the realms of things that are very difficult to, divert, to diversify away from. But um, he, this is where things like um, uh, private credit can be useful. Uh, private credit is very risky in all sorts of ways. Um, but one of the ways is well, it, you know, if if you're structuring transactions where you actually have the bank um, account and it's a segregated bank account, and you're just permissioning people to put money in and, and take disperse it to, to to borrowers and you're always in control of it, then you're kind of more in control of your counterparty risk and you're more in control of the liquidity profile of your um um uh, that, that you're facing. You're not going to get gated. You know, so so this is so in terms of you you know the portfolio construction, you can actually do some you can you can to some degree you can hedge some of those um those more hidden risks because you've got a wider range of instruments that you can deploy. Okay. And I mean, in terms of building that all weather kind of return profile, do you have some kind of buckets in mind or, you know, do, are you thinking, okay, this, this strategy falls more into growth and this is more inflation protection and this is kind of correlation protection or is it more, okay, we're, we, it's taking a kind of more of a holistic view and making sure you have some protection to all of the scenarios. How do you think about that, you know, all weather in that sense? That's a, that's a great question. I should say that um, in, in, in simple terms, we're value investors, right? So it, it's not about buying 
I mean, for example, suppose, for example, you say, well, you know, so you're not going to predict that the market is going to decline, but, you know, you, you stress test, well, what would happen if the market, you know, just suddenly fell by 30% in, in a month or a week and volatility spiked? Obviously, that might happen. You don't want to predict it, but it might happen. So how do we build a robust portfolio against the market falling by 30% um, in a month? And the answer is you can buy some put options, right? The problem is that's not very good value. <laughs> that's, not a very, that's not a very intelligent way to, to, um, to, to protect yourself from that tail. We would we would argue. It's, sometimes it is, but usually it isn't. Buying buying puts, you know, I would give you a vanilla example, um, but that's not you're not really getting good value, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So yes, we want to hedge ourselves for um, from a, a very sudden market decline, but we're not just going to go out and spend lots of money on insurance premiums, right? Because that's that's how you lose money. Um, I think that the what we think much more closely about is how can we get good value for that tail? How can we get good value? Um, how can we get a very, very cheap or even a negative cost um, um, uh, uh, protection against that type of scenario? Very cheap exposure to that scenario. That's kind of what we do. Um, and that's, as I said, it's not, uh, that's not easy. You're talking about cheap or even free insurance. And, and people don't like to give away cheap or free insurance. People, like, people normally charge you know, quite a healthy premium for it. Um, uh, so you know, we spend a lot of time doing, doing that. Um, you know, I, I'll give you, give you one, one good example right now is the SPAC market. SPACs are a really hated area um, of, um, of of finance. I think for very very good reason. Um, lots of crooks, lots of phonies, lots of bad actors, some terrible companies, uh, and some, just frankly some some all round kind of bad behaviour. Um, and obviously, you know, the SPAC market's been kind of found out. It, it, it kind of peaked. You know, probably would have been about yeah, I think it would have been about February last year, um, and it, you know it, it's had a very very tough time since then. Activity's grown to a halt. But what you're left with now, um, you've left with a market that pretty much everyone has exited, um, and you've got all these kind of you know distressed, stroke, probably defunct spacs lying around trading for zero. Now the interesting thing about spacs is that you you do get you know when a spac is issued. I don't know how much you know about spacs, but when a spac is issued, it get it comes with a warrant. Right, and that warrant, which is just a, just a, an option um, on the typically five year option on the, um, the future value of the of the stock. Now, when a SPAC IPOs, it's just a, it's a pool of cash, right? So the option, an option on cash, isn't worth anything. But if they do a deal and suddenly that cash now becomes a stake in a business and the business goes 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 well, um, then obviously that option, that warrant, is worth something. Right. So what you have with these warrants is you basically have a suppose you've got a bull market and suddenly these SPACs are finding lots of deals to do. And these deals, actually, some of them are worth something and they actually go up in value. Then these these warrants are worth something. Right. Um, uh, and what you have right now is that these warrants are trading basically for zero. Right. So and, and there's very good reasons for that. Right. It was specific to the SPAC market. But. If you get a return to the bull market, if you get a return to um, uh, uh, you know the kind of go-go year, or even if you actually just get some kind of life coming back into the market and some, the, the market starts moving higher again, those warrants are going to be worth something, right? Now, uh, right now we're getting them for zero, so this is interesting. This is very interesting because now we've got that we've got that right tail, right? Suppose there's a runaway bull market in stocks, we can get exposure to that kind of for free with no downside, right? That's a that's a kind of interesting kind of um, uh, uh, risk profile for us. And of course, you could then even take it more macro and say, well, wh why would that happen? Well, it might happen if there was a big inflation blow off, right? So suppose actually inflation hasn't um, been brought under control. And suppose actually um, the Fed are talking tough because it's easy to talk tough with unemployment at three and a half percent, but uh, how tough are they going to be with if unemployment hits 8%? Right or nine percent, right? Uh, and suppose that happens sooner than we think, and suppose the default cycle is worse than we think, and actually suppose they pull off and 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 they they, they stop raising interest rates without really killing inflation, and inflation rips during the next cycle. Um, that could be very very bullish for equities as a kind of inflation hedge. If we can get exposure to that for free, that's that's a that's you know offered very very cheaply. That's very very interesting. So, you know. Hedging outcomes, it's not just about necessarily hedging market downturns. It, it, it's pretty much, you know, all of the angles that we can think of, can we can we find a cheap way to um, to, 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 get, uh, to get access to that? 
interesting. Yeah, I mean the, the other, uh, I suppose, uh, skill that's involved in all of this is assessing the, the manager as well. Obviously, you're a fund of funds investor, so so you're handing over the cash to another manager. Um, and you know, you talked about how you've worked with people and been fascinated about the behavioural side of things. Is that do you think a different? skill manager selection is it subject to the same kind of behavioral biases when you select a manager uh, as when you invest in an equity or the different, so. different biases yeah no i think it's the same you know i i, I think I, I honestly you know I, I run an equity book um uh and um i mean i ran an equity book at the family office it's not just this isn't just my prop trading stuff so prop trading I, it was very it was quite short term. Um, uh, you know, it was it, it, it was a trading um, desk. Um, whereas the family office, I, when I first went there, I was I went there with the job of building an equity team, uh, and this was a family office approach to investing in equities, which was you know radically different. It was very very fundamental, very very long term, um, uh, and um, you know the opposite end of the spectrum from the prop desk really. Um, but uh, one of the things that always struck me about um, uh, the equity market was was the power of the narrative. Uh, people would always go after the narrative. People love the sexy story, and we just saw it kind of turbocharged um, in 2021. Uh, and um, we, you know, Kathy Wood and you know the SPAC market we've just been talking about. Um, that kind of narrative it can seduce you and it can, can blind it can blind you um, from. Uh, and distract you from 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 the things that you should be paying attention to and the things that you should be looking at, and that's absolutely no different with um, with managers. The narrative, you know, managers will try to seduce you with it with a narrative. They will have their kind of story, as everyone does. Um, and I think that maybe the best um, the best heuristic that 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 I came came across and and, and deployed. Uh, and continue to deploy was that you you know you you, you watch the actions yeah you, know, you, you pay attention to the actions not the words you, what are they doing right what the, what 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 do they say they're doing and that's fine that's interesting but it's not the same as what they're doing right do you un actually understand what they're doing I mean it's it's so straightforward um, it's such an easy thing to you know nobody would disagree with that um, it's so uncontroversial you know. Um, you, you play the ball, not the man. Uh, but um, it really is um, such a, I, I think it's, it's one of the most common mistakes. Okay. And I mean, from your own perspective, you know, selecting um, managers, are there things, you know, are there kind of criteria you would say, okay, this 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 makes them a great investor or a great manager? Um, is, is that just a qualitative assessment or do you think you can kind of quantify that? I am very skeptical that you, that that's quantifiable. Um, and again, you know, I have a kind of you know a macro background. I, I, I've known a lot of macro investors. I do think that a lot of a lot of it is hot air. I think a lot of it. I, it's very we we actually don't really invest in macro um, because it's very very difficult to determine um, the extent to which people actually know anything. Right? Or they're just guessing? Or they're just on a hot run? Uh, there's a couple of exceptions, but um, uh, macro is very, very much about the narrative. You know, lots of people spinning a narrative and buying a narrative uh, in a way that it's very difficult to uh, to invest in. Uh, our preference really is to invest in managers. I think it's much easier invest in managers who 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 just have found this niche that that they absolutely are on top of. And they know how it works and they know how to do it. And they've been doing it for bloody donkeys and their team have been doing it for donkeys. And, and that's all they do. Um, and um, uh, ideally, those types of managers are just harnessing something from the market, whether it's some kind of risk premium that just, just has to exist or just some little kind of niche that's just not, it's too small for the big for the big guys to to, to to be interested in. Um those types of managers are more interesting, I think, because you're you know, I think that people spend so much time fussing about, you know, um alpha and uh finding the 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 the, the best in the peer group. Um, and of course, you want to find the best in the peer group. You don't knowingly, you don't want to knowingly associate with the dummies. You don't knowingly want to allocate to the idiots. 
Um, but uh, to, to reliably be the best in the group is, is just very, 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 very hard. I think it's much easier to pay for access. You know, you find someone who's found, you know, um, uh, who knows how to source litigation claims in the north of England, right? That doesn't mean that they're the best litigation sourcer. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. Right, but you're still going to pay them fees because they're going to make a very high return because it's such an inefficient market, and you don't know how to source those deals, right? You don't, you don't know that you don't know the ecosystem, you don't know the landscape, you don't know that you know you don't know the background, you, you you know you just don't know how to source. So effectively, what you're paying the manager for is access, and of course, the manager has to have high integrity. Ideally, they're quite smart, um, uh, but you're not really paying for you know because this manager is best in class. Right? You're paying just because this manager has access to a return stream that most people don't have access to. And that's the type of manager that's that that's that's the type of activity that we like. The type of manager that we like typically is probably not the type of manager that you would necessarily want to have dinner with. You know, maybe the kind of manager who's so down his rabbit hole and so obsessed with his or her space that they don't really have much else to say. Um, and they don't have much else to talk about. Um, you know, that's kind of, that's the ideal kind of manager. And even better if those types of managers don't have a good sales department um, and they're not very good at selling themselves because they're not great dinner companions and they're frankly a little bit geeky about their own their own area. That's the kind of, that, that that's a great, a great um, kind of um, manager to invest in. So, so we're very, I should say that a lot of our managers are, very very fun and they do like to to they are very good over dinner um and so it's not that it's not the case that we just we only go for people who are not great dinner companions but that's the kind of that that would be the sweet spot for us and i mean it, briefly we, uh, we're getting close to to the hour um i mean when things go wrong and the types of scenarios that prompt you to exit from a manager does that typically be driven by you know that that maybe that risk premium isn't there, or the, the expected return isn't as strong, or can it be something more manager specific, or and you know what are typical triggers around that side? Yeah, I mean all of the above. Uh, I think uh, you know it, it can be that the overall market is is not looking as attractive, and I said that can be because expected returns are lower, or it could be expected risk is higher. Um, it could be it could be manager specific. Um, the manager has lost their focus for some reason. Um, uh, the manager's AUM has grown very, very rapidly, very, very quickly. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, that can sometimes rapid AUM growth is kind of okay. Um, uh, it depends on what the space is, and it depends on what what they were, you know, what they set out to do. You know, if they set out to say, listen, you know, we, we actually, you know, we're doing I know, capital structure arbitrage. We think we can allocate, we, we can deploy a billion dollars in this space and they're a $150 manager. Um, well, if they suddenly get up to six or seven or 800, that's okay, right? Because that's what they said they were going to do. Um, when you get a private credit um, uh, manager who says, who's managing $50 and says they think there's maybe 150 of space or capacity. And next thing you know, you know, the, you, you know, they've gone through 300 and they're looking to get to 500. Then, then that's, then I, I think you kind of ask questions. Um, uh, and of course, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I would say it's a combination of those things. Yeah, no, fair enough. Great. Well, um, we we typically ask people before we wrap up, you know, um, you know, you've obviously been in the markets number of decades, done a bunch of different things. Uh, for 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 people who want to, you know, develop a career along similar lines, either as a strategist or researcher or hedge fund allocator, you know, what would be the tips uh, that you would tell people to things to focus on or things to read, etc. Uh, would you so firstly um, read a lot? You have to read a lot. Um, you know, I think Charlie Munger said he didn't know anyone. He didn't know any successful person who didn't read a lot. And I think that's true. Read a lot and read actively. So don't just read a book and then read another one and then read another one. Take notes on it, you know, absorb it, digest it, find people to talk, talk to about it. Um, so, and, and it's not just about books, it's investor letters, um, it's, it's newspapers, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, you know, whatever you can, you can kind of get your hands on. The second thing is, you know, you can kind of read as much as you like. You won't actually know how to do something until you do it. So, so go and do it, right? Um, 
most people will tell you if you've got an idea or you've got something most people will tell you it's a bad idea most people will tell you that it's stupid most people will tell you not to do it um if lots of people tell you that i mean it might just be that they're right um but if you really really feel it and you really really believe it um listen to yourself don't listen to don't let other people dissuade you if you really really want to do something you have to get out there and do it um uh, you you will ultimately be better off for the for for, for the experience and then the, the last thing is you got to love it you got to really love what you're doing right it's got to be what animates you um and and you have to be very honest with yourself about what animates you and and, and what you love to do um uh, because you're competing and this is true for anything it doesn't matter what is finance or soccer or anything you will be competing with people who who really do love what they're doing um uh, and the people who really love what they're doing they will put the extra hours in they'll be the ones who are kind of thinking about it when they should be watching a film with the with the kids or you know they will be the ones who are kind of you know be waking up in the middle of the night jotting down investment ideas or or, or or ever that's who you're competing with so make sure you love it and if you don't love it don't do it find something that you do love well, great that 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 is great advice um appreciate you coming on it's been fascinating uh talking to you um so thanks very much uh dylan thanks a lot for having me i really enjoyed it absolutely no with that thanks uh and back to Dil- uh, back to Niels, i should say thank you so much alan and dylan for some great insights into the thinking of a hedge fund allocator dylan made some really great points one of which of course is how difficult it is to know something and why it's better to build portfolios that are really not sensitive to the latest CPI or non-farm payroll figures, or whether or not you can make accurate predictions about the future. Stress-testing ideas and building portfolios accordingly seem to have served them well. I also found his observations and experience about how so many of the hedge fund strategies in reality are just different shades of equity risk, something I very much agree with. Of course, his research into how historical realized volatility does not have to always spike during a crisis due to the correlation factor was also very useful to hear for many investors who are looking to protect their portfolios and how he believes that you can build a low-risk portfolio using higher-risk strategies as long as they don't correlate, something that we, of course, are very much in agreement with on this podcast. But of course, there are so many more gems in this conversation. That's it for this episode. Make sure you go and follow Dylan and Al's work because as you can tell from the conversation today, it is so important that you understand what's going on from a global macro point of view in order to allocate capital well. And we really look forward to sharing many more of these insights as our series continue. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.